0: This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by the Kauffman Foundation, investing in educators and lifting up the Kansas City region, which is dedicated to learning together to improve educational and economic success. Learn more at Kauffman.org. America's students are getting more diverse. The teaching force is going the opposite direction. Our teachers have a lot of thoughts about how to deal with that sticky term, diversity. Plus, you know that phrase, those who can't do teach. Well, our teachers think that people who say that can't teach. But what makes a good teacher? Those stories, plus kids these days, on this edition of the No Wrong Answers Podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I used to be in the classroom as an English teacher. Now I'm behind the mic as a radio journalist. And I'm joined, as always, by a group of hardworking teachers who have a lot on their minds and are ready to talk. So let's introduce them. Rebecca McIntosh, what do you teach?
1: I teach students at an alternative school just outside Kansas City.
0: David Persley, what do you teach? High school math and computer science. And once again, we have a new teacher joining us from Chicago. Last week, you might remember, it was Kara Trojan. This week, it's Lynn Osborne-Simmons. Lynn from Chicago, thanks for joining us on No Wrong Answers. And what do you teach? Yes, good
2: afternoon. I teach science students with disabilities in high school level and the Southwest side.
0: And so Lynn's in Chicago. Rebecca and David are both in the Kansas City metro area. They are all... Public school teachers. Well, to our first segment, think back to when you were a pre service teacher. How much training did you get on diversity? And once you were in the classroom, did you feel prepared to deal with students who were different from you? The answers to these questions, writ large, are increasingly urgent in America today. Students are getting more diverse. The U.S. Census Bureau says the percentage of non-white people living in this country has been and will continue to steadily go up. By 2060, it's projected that the proportion of whites and non-whites will essentially be 50-50. At the same time, the teaching force today remains stubbornly homogenous. Nearly 80% of teachers are white women. In fact, the teaching force has been getting whiter, though slightly less female, over the past three decades. Something's gotta give. There's a growing body of research that shows a teacher's race or gender has impacts on student achievement. Having a teacher of the same race or gender often helps students perform better. Conversely, not having a teacher that looks like them can set back student achievement. The New York Times Upshot blog had a great piece recently summarizing that research. We've actually kind of talked about those things before, the effects of, uh, of teacher uh, race on, on student achievement. Um, so I do want to talk about that a little bit, but I also want to get more into something else, what can be done about that, knowing at least for now that the vast majority of teachers uh, today are and will remain white women. But first, I do want to ask our teachers here today, Rebecca, David, and Lynn, about times or stories in class where your race or gender mattered for a student or a group of students, either because you were like them or weren't like them. How have you seen this dynamic play out uh, with you in your classes?
2: I'm African American, but my students don't believe that I am because um, they say, I don't talk like I'm black. They say, uh, you have an accent, uh, you're from Jamaica, and I also speak Spanish. So a lot of them think I'm Puerto Rican or Cuban. So I always try to begin like that first day or so with some type of personal story about where my parents are from and how I grew up what school I went to. And I have to do that like every year to break the ice with them. My school, my high school is so diverse that a lot of times when they uh, come to my school, that's the first time they're encountering someone in different cultures and different languages. So there's a lot of, like, social and emotional learning that we have to do the first week of school and trying to get people to be comfortable because there are students who, like, African-American students who will not come to a classroom if they are the only student there uh, that is African-American. And then they're looking
0: at me. Yeah, I mean, it sounds interesting. It it almost sounds like your students are probing your, like, the authenticity of your (laughs) blackness. why do you, what do you attribute that to? What are they looking for when they ask those questions?
2: They, they think I'm lying. They tell me I'm lying. They've asked me, "Why do you speak like a white person?" And I told them, "There's a time and place for everything, but like this is a professional business, and when I speak to you. I'm speaking to you as a professional. That doesn't. It's hard to register with them because they're struggling so hard just to come to school and make it through high school. So
0: yeah, uh, David, I want to hear from you as well. I mean, wh- what are your reflections on? your your race and gender mattering to your students?
3: Yeah, so most of my students are, yeah, almost all of my students, like 95% are African-American. I'm also African-American male. Lynn, I can totally relate to the perception of your identity based on the way you speak, right, and almost seeing race and identity as something as performative. But But my experience being a black male, being in a classroom, is interesting because I went in my first year thinking that I would have tremendous amounts of c- success because I shared the same identity and background as my students. And, and the reason I became an educator was because I didn't have a lot of people who were interested in math and science who looked like myself growing up, and so I wanted to become that role model for my kids. I wanted to normalize that. But I was never intentional and or explicit about naming that within the classroom. I just kind of jumped in assuming they all knew that. And my students, they were like, yo, who are you? Like, tr- like you know, they, t- they treated me like I was brand new. They, they made my first year very difficult in hindsight it was it was so arrogant arrogant of me to think about it this way but it's like you guys like i'm i'm like one of you all like why are you being so difficult and i think for me it was realizing oh that can matter and that is a lever that i can take advantage of and I've, i think i've definitely figured out how to do that much more effectively but you know i had to be very intentionally explicit and i think for me it was trying to use personal anecdotes and just also like my own personal background and family background to like get them to understand the stakes right like the strides that my parents had to make from where they started to where they got to give me the opportunity to do what I'm doing. But also my experience as like a college student and the struggles I faced going to a predominantly white institution, feeling as though I was like at the top of my class amongst my own high school, but then getting to college and then realizing that I was like still way out of my pay grade and like getting them to understand like yo, we don't have time for this. Like I can tell you from experience, there are a lot of people unfortunately who are out there who are going to not want to see the best in you. Right. And it's interesting, again, from your perspective, right. Dealing with your student. It's like, it almost seems like they may have internalized that in the way that's like when they see someone who is on the other side of things, they're like, wait, what's up? Something's up. What's the catch? Uh,
0: for Lynn and David, do you, do you feel uh, being black teachers that you, you have impacts? Have you, have you seen the impact on that you've had on your black students? I, I asked because I, I point <laughs> out something that was a paper published last year. Um, by the Institute of Labor Economics, had a, a pretty interesting conclusion. One of the headline conclusions from it was when black children had a black teacher just once between third and fifth grades, and I know you guys teach high school, but if they had a black teacher just once between third and fifth grades, they they were significantly less likely to later drop out of high school. And uh, both were uh, more likely to attend college as well. So long lasting effects just by having one. Even thinking back to when you were students, why would that be the case? Why is that the effect? I
2: Uh, I didn't come up through the public school system. My mom always insisted that I go to, like, these private Catholic schools, and they were not, very rarely were there uh, people of color in those days teaching. But the teachers I had really warmly embraced me. In fact, like my fourth-grade teacher made it a point, She knew I wouldn't talk much, so she made a point to introduce me to Gwendolyn Brooks, because she knew I liked poetry, and that made me come out of my shell. And even in high school, I didn't have many African-American teachers, so I I was not, even though when I was young, I wanted to be a teacher. By the time I got out of high school, I was really unsure what it was until I started subbing some years later. Hmm.
3: David, um... Yeah. I, so I'm I, um, kind of on the other end of things that go to public schools my entire life. And I had exceptional teachers of all, of all races. My school was, um, I would say, did have a much higher percentage of African-American teachers than usual, especially my high school. And I think that had a big impact on me because I, I definitely remember seeing myself in my teachers. But as an educator now, I can also see how I think the other thing was that they helped me to higher expectations because I think they saw me in themselves, too. What was interesting between my past teachers and and what I see myself doing now in the classroom is that a lot of our teachers, especially African-American teachers, try to model what I think like professional behavior is. Right. And so there is this like, you know, you have to speak and engage and be a certain way. But I think it's important to like break down that wall and be like, this is a tool to navigate professional spaces, but. I'm really big into the idea of disruption and changing that narrative. And so what I try to find myself doing sometimes is having moments where like when I do communicate with students, I do it in a way that is, you know, like, quote unquote, less professional, right? Whether it be in speaking in terms of slang or talking with students in a certain way, right? Whether it's validating or affirming them. And it's being like, I understand, I can connect, I can relate to you and really trying to get you to feel comfortable. And I think that's really important, too. I think one of the things educators can do. Better in general. Uh, well, this
0: conversation is a good segue into the the next part of the conversation that I wanted to have, which was the fact that we have a increasingly diversifying student body, but at the same time, the teaching force overall is still very much. Mostly white, mostly female, nearly eighty percent, and that situation is not going to change anytime soon. I mean, we might be putting more people into the pipeline. We might be trying to diversify the teach for, teaching force, but in reality, uh, at least for the foreseeable future, that that dichotomy is going to remain the same. So, what do we do about it? And so, I wonder. I wanted to ask all three of you: Did you feel prepared going into the teaching? job that you had first did you feel prepared to deal with I guess what I would call for lack of a better term diversity issues dealing with students who uh, were different from you had different experiences from you looked different from you
2: I would just say one of my first uh, teaching experience was on the west side and people told me if I made it there I could make it anywhere and I wasn't sure what they were saying but even getting off the bus and walking one block to the school they told me my life was, like, at risk because it was such a war zone. and It was between, like, their Puerto Rican kids and African-American kids. Even though they may have been born and growing up on the same block, there was, like, a war going on between them.
0: Lynn, I find it interesting that you were, you know, going into your first job— you were being told that you were going into a war zone. Like, you were being given this very kind of negative, kind of uh, deficit-based view view of the community and school where you were going to be going into. And I I have to say, I mean, I think probably a lot of teachers probably have that experience. Um, And I wonder how that affected your mindset, walking into that school and walking into those classrooms for the first time.
2: Well, it was interesting because they told me that after I was working there, and they said, please don't walk down this block, because that's where most of the shootings are going to happen. And they happen in broad daylight. So that was not and a lot of gang activities, even in the elementary school, but mostly in the middle school that was adjoining the building, a lot of gang activities, and, like kids were getting shot, like, right, but then, like, two-block radius of the school all the time, and this was, this was their normal life, and that was not my normal life growing. Uh, we weren't rich. We weren't even, I think, middle class, but... We were all I never felt unsafe walking to and from school, so that was a very unique experience for me but I just my thing was like kids are kids, and what can I do within the locus of my control to make them feel safe uh
0: Rebecca, you are the uh representative white woman on on the panel today <laughs> um I do want to um uh, I, I want to ask you about your pre-service training as a white woman, and I'm going to quote someone. Uh, Jennifer Rich is an education professor at uh, Rowan University in New Jersey. She wrote an opinion piece recently for Ed Week. I do want to quote it at length. Um, she says, on average, her classes of roughly 25 student-teachers. Generally, at least 20 of them are white women. That kind of um, is to form in terms of what we know about the general teaching population. But here's what she says about her students. And I'll quote here. My students are good people. Many of them grew up working class or are, are the first in their families to go to college. They want to teach because they love children and they want to help them learn Often, though, the idea that they will teach children who are different from them, who have had different experiences and face different challenges, simply does not register. They define themselves as normal because they are white and Christian. They love to claim colorblindness as if this is the right answer. End quote. Rich goes on to say that she often tries to challenge um, a lot of these assumptions enforce for her teacher trainees into uncomfortable but um, ultimately productive conversations about race and privilege. All that by way of saying – asking you, Rebecca, as a white woman, what were your experiences being trained on diversity as a pre-service teacher? And did you feel prepared to deal with it once you got into the classroom?
1: I'm not sure if this is coming at me as the white woman or as the old woman. <laughs> but as the old woman – Thank you, Lynn. I will say um, it did not it did not figure into my pre-service work 30 years ago. Mercy. My training it happened in the, the bluest of the bluegrass state and we didn't have diversity to talk about. And I had to be very intentional about that when I changed geography, when I changed location. And I feel very positive about what's happening now in pre-service because your description um, from your quote is absolutely accurate. We have these these classes of new teachers coming through um, and we are adding this training in because it is absolutely critical, this cultural competency. The, the, we have to be aware of our biases, implicit and explicit, and because that is what so, our job is now. So, how did so you, I think it's
0: changing. You said you didn't get it. None at all. But you, you seem to indicate that you have been trying to uh, educate yourself and catch up during your career, if that's the right way to put it. I've been
1: fortunate to be in districts that have made that a priority where clearly what we were doing, delivering instruction, was not working. And we had to change the way we were delivering that instruction. So
0: give me me an example of what that might look like. Talking to teachers about uh, race or diversity issues or trying to train them.
1: Well, at the very basic level, we have to learn to recognize our own implicit and explicit biases. We have to be able to talk as as adults. Yeah, you have to be able to look at your colleagues on staff and call them out and call yourself out on language or affirmations or hostilities that you're doing in your classroom that you're not even aware of
0: yeah david it seemed like you wanted to say
3: something yeah Tell i me. i know i yeah. got you <laughs> uh we are past the elephant in the room point where any school district understands the need for diversity training i think there's a lot of Efforts to push forward, I definitely have concerns about those. And so definitely. to your point, right, to kind of validate mm-hmm. your point but also put in the question to some extent between when you received your pre-service training and when I received mine, there was attempts to navigate, like, diversity training. I felt like it was done poorly. Um, and I feel like my diversity for you, training for me, yeah. for me and for a good amount of my, my peers, it, we would agree, especially people of color, because I think, you know, there was... I mean, so, like, let's just name the elephant in the room, right? When you're talking about predominantly white educators and the idea of, like, developing your own identity in a way that allows you to move past the, like, phase of white guilt and to see your identity as a way to empower students. And that's not necessarily, like, using your identity. It's also just, like, using what you have to to elevate your students' identities and things like that. And, and, and so, for me, my my training for that really came through, being a, a student of color to predominantly white college. For me, it was understanding and actually seeing the manifestations of some of those systems play out on a day-to-day basis and trying to, like, unpack that. But then when I went to my classroom, I realized, like, the way I would unpack those conversations with some of my white peers is a lot different than the way I unpack it with my students. So I had to kind of mm-hmm. go through this entirely new cycle of, like, understanding what, how I'm presenting myself, how I'm engaging with students, how I'm trying to open their eyes to these topics. But I mean, there's like layers to that, that, that training and development. The first is like, understand your identity, right? Understand like the social identity construct, right? Whether it be with regards to gender, race, socioeconomic status, understanding how every unique individual is a composition of those different things. And that's the foundation, right? You can't talk about trying to do identity work for your students or empowering your students' identities without understanding your own identity and how those systems of power and oppression could or cannot play out in the classroom. So those
1: those bright young new educators coming in saying that they're – Air quotes here. Colorblind.
3: <laughs> yeah, that's just one-cut no, it. it. No, yeah, you and have that,
1: to see the color. No, and
3: yeah, yeah no. No, it's yeah, it's I. Oh my I mean, I got that so much in college. I had right. friends. I have friends who come like, oh, when I see you, I don't see color, and I'm like, um, no,
1: no, no. And and for a while, I didn't know
3: how to respond to that. And then I figured out the appropriate response was like, I'm. I appreciate that you're comfortable enough with me that in your eyes you don't see my race, but my identity is actually a very significant part of who I am. And if you don't see that part of me then I'm not sure you uh, t- truly appreciate me in my entirety for who I am. Right.
2: And as someone growing up in Chicago, there's a little bit of difference then because we are still one of the most segregated, if not the most segregated city. So if you're going to school, you're not going to see people more than likely different from you. And like when I walk down the street, first and foremost, I'm black. Or they're trying to figure out, am I black, am I Indian, am I Cuban? But... um there's still a lot of pushback as far as, like, the training uh, in the schools and with the principals. So, I mean, we have, like, a diversity team that really pushed this with uh, our central office, and there's, like, now training for principals about implicit bias. Because of the way we grew up and in Chicago, all this racial tension, I think even African-American teachers need to recognize their own biases against African-American Absolutely. students. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, I do want to kind of funnel this conversation towards a, an ending point, but I do want to talk about some, um, I guess, some possible solutions now to work with teachers who are already in the profession, who who struggle with or, or have simply never thought about diversity issues. Again, that Upshot article that I cited earlier did go over one study which found that informing teachers about their stereotypes uh, led to them grading students of different races more equitably. Now, that sounds... Uh, like a simple and relatively easy solution, but that also, I think, does clash with some of, I guess, at least m- at least my assumptions based on another in vogue idea that's being discussed in education nowadays. Which is, uh, I think, you kind of kind of have touched upon it, uh, the idea of white fragility. White teachers don't really like being told they have stereotypes, or that can be an often dicey proposition. Or uh, what do you think about just like directly uh, confronting teachers with their implicit bias or their stereotypes? Does that work, or how could it work effectively?
2: Uh, I have a friend who has done that. These two teachers just have a great rela- working relationship, but she said, "Like for real, I think you are prejudiced." And uh, the teacher just avoided it and didn't say anything. <laughs> they just so that's how they deal with it. Like, well, you know, no, I'm I'm not going. This is to.
0: your friend telling your colleagues that they're prejudiced,
2: right? Yeah, right. There has to be a a, a way to deal with that, and it has to be. I'm sorry, like a more in-your-face type of direct training that you cannot avoid, you know. So Mm -hmm. just like our city recently had mandatory training about uh, child sexual abuse, and it was mandated, and you had to uh, train, attend the training. It was like over two hours, I think, and if you left the room for like 10 minutes, you have to take it over again. And if we didn't... uh, have the training, then we could not come in the classroom that first day of school. So that is important. Why is not this type of diversity training, why is that not have the same type mm-hmm. of significance? Uh,
0: Rebecca and David, I mean, based on what you've said, you, you both sound, and Lynn does too, but you, both, you all sound like you have thought about this a lot in your own lives, your own biases and, and what you bring into the classroom. How does that get expanded to more teachers, that mindset? I think it, it has to be,
1: be i think it has to be really intentional. Yeah. I think when David said put call the elephant in the room, the elephant in the room, I think you have to be intentional. You have to sit as a as a faculty and look at the data. What are our scores? What are our attendance numbers? Who are we calling on in class? Who are the students that are getting tracked to discipline? Who are the mm-hmm. students that are getting tracked for extra resources? You have to to really look at it intentionally through the lens of are all of our students receiving the same
0: opportunities? Our podcast today is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation, learning together with families, educators, entrepreneurs, and innovators to develop quality education that prepares all of Kansas City students for the future of learning and work. Join the conversation by visiting Kauffman.org or on Twitter at KauffmanFDN. On to our second segment, you know the old saying, those who can't do, teach, well, maybe the reverse is a more accurate statement. Accomplished, naturally gifted doers are often very bad teachers. Einstein is a famous example. The Nobel Prize winning physicist was apparently a terrible college professor. He consistently had trouble getting students to enroll in his courses. He got numerous scathing performance reviews at various stops along his career. One biographer put it this way, Einstein was never an inspired teacher and his lectures tended to be regarded as disorganized. Adam Grant, an organizational psychologist, relates Einstein's story in a recent opinion piece for the New York Times with the headline, Those Who Can Do Can't Teach. Our listeners and teachers everywhere thinking yeah, We told you so. Grant's argument <laughs> Grant's <laughs> argument is applied more to college professors than K-12 teachers. We should say before we get into this. But still, some of his points I found interesting and also applicable to elementary and secondary teachers. Uh, so I wanted to, to pick our teachers' brains. Uh, Grant says, when searching for great teachers, look for three things. How long a teacher has been teaching or focusing on their subject, how difficult it was for them to master their material, and how good they are at communicating. Let's go with this first one, how long a teacher has been teaching. Paradoxically, he suggests that teachers who have come to their subject more recently, that is, or less experienced, may be better because they're looking at it with fresh eyes. And as Grant points out, have more recent experiences with what it was like to be a learner for that material. So not necessarily years in classroom, but years on a particular subject or a particular thing that you are teaching. For our teachers, what do you think? Do you come with fresh eyes to your job every year or something that you're teaching?
1: Don't laugh because you do. And I'm going to play the old (laughs) card again. And I challenge you all to agree with me. But yes, it's this strange paradox of our profession that you do start every year with the. this year. I'm going to get better at it. I'm going to get it right.
0: Well, Rebecca, Even, I, I thought just, teachers just went away for the summer and then came back and dusted off their old <laughs> lesson no, plans. <laughs> you
1: make no. me sad. You make me sad, Mr. Palmer. You make me sad.
0: Um, uh, oh, my God. Lynn, Lynn your thoughts on, on being a, a learning <laughs> I teacher.
2: I don't want to talk about the time I went to school, but the time I started teaching until now, these young people are completely different. What you had like five years ago does not even work for today.
0: Right, so you're even like thinking about not even just the material you're teaching, but the the types of of students y- yeah. you're teaching. Grant's second point: how difficult it is for teachers to master their material is often a sign of how good a teacher will be. Again, Grant presents a paradox of sorts. He says you don't want a teacher who finds their subject easy. You want a teacher or coach even who found what they're teaching to be hard at first, at least. Because if you find something hard, then you have to think more about how to do it and improve at it. And this, Grant says, makes for good teaching because you, as the teacher, have considered and pondered about process and experienced roadblocks and hiccups and know when other learners are likely to stumble. Um, I want to direct this point to to David because you actually come from a field. You are very much into computer science and and math, Mm -hmm. very kind of like... Uh, I think oftentimes seen as, as, as practical skills. Yeah. Um, I think you had the opportunity to, to go into the tech field after you graduated college, but you went into teaching. Um, do you buy this argument that, that Grant is making here? That
3: uh, Yeah. Um, yes and no. Um, <laughs> classic. Uh, I always do that. I mean, so I, I went to college and bounced around between applied math and engineering and statistics and computer science and definitely did not have the most enjoyable experiences with most of my professors because it was that classic You know, fallacy of, like, being an expert in your content doesn't equate to you having the capacity to be able to explain it well. The curse Um, of knowledge is what they call it, right? Yeah, yeah, (laughs) but um, me speaking personally, and this might sound a bit arrogant to say, but I've never seen that issue in myself. And maybe that's because I've always been excited by the challenge of trying to make sense of something complicated to someone else. I was tutoring peers in high school. I started teaching kids elementary school math in in high school. I I hadn't thought about those things for a while, but I've always operated in a way that's, I think, given me the ability to empathize and to think through what other people may not have. Are you going to meet students where they are? And if you can't do that, it doesn't matter what subject you're teaching or how you go about doing it. You're going to find some challenge with a student. And if that's not the mindset you're coming at it from, you're going to find yourself coming off the wrong way, whether it be through condescending or giving up on them. And it's just going to create a negative environment in your classroom. Rebecca. Which
1: is an excellent segue to what I suspect Kyle's going to say about Dr. Grant's (laughs) next point
3: about communication.
1: (laughs) But now having listened to Lynn talk and listened to David be really eloquent right there. I'm prepared to throw out Dr. Grant's premise in that the, the teaching that we do mm-hmm. is not outcome-driven in that it's not deliver this product and then get to the end. It's, it's more it's more global than that. It's, yeah. it's managing that group yes. mm-hmm. and Absolutely. that Socratic piece of teaching our students to be thinkers. They're not—I yes. mean, we know that the students we have now aren't going to need facts and figures— like we sometimes teach. teach. They're going to need to learn to explore and investigate and collaborate and be creative and find answers, and that's a very different thing than learning about commas in the periodic table <laughs> and things that are more
0: discreet. Uh, well, the last point is about communication. It may go more without saying, I think, that teachers need to be good communicators. That was Grant's point. Um, you need to be able to talk. Nobody here has that problem, I don't think. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> But it's not it's not, just, yeah. uh,
3: it's not. it's not just.
0: it's not just. it's not just being like easy in front of an audience, though. It's more also just about, I think, getting to your point, Rebecca, being able to explain something clearly and with precision and accuracy. Is that is that a learned trait as a teacher, or do teachers kind of have to have kind of a baseline ability to be able to do that to be successful going in, or can you learn to be more to communicate with more clarity? Uh,
2: I, I, you know, uh, I really think there's something. It's an ongoing process that communication because. Especially like not only that uh, students are different than when you might first start teaching, but teachers are different. Mm-hmm. You know, you know they come from more; they are more diverse sometimes, and then or different from you. Like there are like more like white teachers, and it's they might not be able to understand or relate to things I'm talking about. So it's like it just looking at like uh, myself who's been in the profession for some time, and you're thinking about. Like, you come to work every day. You spend so much time with these people. You spend more time during the week with, you know, the staff and students than you do with your own family. I mean, that goes without a doubt. So you're thinking, like, I want this to be a very harmonious environment, and how can I make that happen? How can I communicate to them in a positive way, even when the kids, like, swearing at you or whatever, you think, like, he's a kid. That's the way I really push myself to think. Sometimes I'm mad. at like, could you step outside my door for a second? And then I calm it down, and then I go out there and talk to him. But sometimes I want to talk to a colleague like that. Like, you know, so it's always about really how communication is, like, the driving point, to whether you're going to have a successful day, week, year, or not.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, um, I'll, I'll wrap this conversation up with one final question. It goes kind of unsaid largely in Grant's piece, but um, great teaching is also very dependent on things like empathy and passion and determination. Einstein, it's clear, didn't have many of those things when it came to students or teaching. He had to do it for, for other things, of course, but in the classroom, at least, he wasn't successful at displaying those characteristics. Um, so that leads me to my final question. What comes first, love of your subject and material or, or love of kids mm-hmm. and the actual act of teaching um, that makes you successful as a teacher?
1: Act of teaching. I'm going to open the playing field with active teaching
0: what because do
1: you mean because it's the knowing that what you're doing fits with what you did yesterday and mm. seeing globally that they need it to okay. do what you're yeah. going to do tomorrow and seeing your students as more than just that 55 minute block of their time. And what Lynn said about creating that community, um, it, it's the act of teaching. It's the act of creating that process of inquiry. More that, so, more so
0: than a particular thing that, that you want to teach. More than the content that you want I, to teach.
3: Yeah, I'm torn with yeah. that. Don't be As torn. A, disagree with <laughs> me. I know. I'm going to disagree it. with you, but I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm going to assume that every educator who enters the profession has a love for working with young people, right? You would hope so. I'm going to make that assumption. Yeah. I think, I mean, yeah. Um, <laughs> I think... <laughs> I think, though, content expertise a lot of times, especially in secondary, is undervalued, right? And what I mean by that is, right, like, mm-hmm. I'll get students who come to my class, and it's not that, like, the teachers they've had before aren't bad. They come in with certain, like, content knowledge, but they aren't, they aren't to your point thinking globally, right? They're not thinking about math right. in a way that's connected, right? They see concepts right. and objectives in isolation, right? And we can make an, 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 an analogy between that Approach to learning math to all kinds of different subjects, right? And it's about making things interconnected, integrated to your point. So I'm agreeing to you to that extent, but I think to actually do that effectively in a subject like math, you need that content expertise. For me, it's like I will observe my peers teach, and I'm like, mm, I see your teaching is kind of as a shortcut to make sure they understand this, but is this actually going to set them up for success later on in a lot of cases? The answer is no. And so it's tricky because, like, again, from the perspective of someone who's like trying to prepare kids for college, math, and science, like, you have to have that connected mindset that you have to see how everything fits. You have to like know what's on the other side, right? Like, and so I think the other thing with that too, and a lot of teachers don't think about this, and this is something that um, worked well for me, but especially when I was struggling as a first year educator, the lever for me to compensate for poor classroom management was strong pedagogy. It was like, I'm gonna make these lessons so rigorous and engaging that like, if you don't engage for a split second, you're gonna lose out. Whereas at first I just thought I could, you know, just, just yell at kids and get their attention. Obviously that didn't work um but but i think i think a lot of the time people don't think about the fact that like loving students and management and pedagogy and rigor and like all those different buzzwords at least for me work in unison. Absolutely. It's like i love you deeply i'm going to make this crap really hard so you can challenge mm-hmm. yourself a lot and i'm going to make sure that it's connected to what you need to get to like for me all those things are one and the same, you know. Um and and so that's just i don't know it's a hard question for me to answer but i think a lot of people see those things separately but for me they I've gotten to a point in my in my work where they aren't. Yeah, Lynn. Final okay, thoughts. Yeah,
2: I, I agree. I mean, first and foremost, you, the saying you gotta wanna you have to want to teach because you're gonna make your life miserable <laughs> if you don't. <laughs> yep. Second of all, uh, to me, science is not about teaching like formulas or mm-hmm. uh, equipment and things like that. It's a thought process. So if you can, I think if you like Rebecca talked about thinking globally, if you can if teach a student a thought process how to think and how to process information. They'll do well, whatever they do.
0: Well, before we go to kids these days, let's tell you about some other education stories that caught our eye recently. It's time for the headlines. The FDA is cracking down on the makers of electronic cigarettes, saying that teens' use of e-cigarettes has reached epidemic levels. Federal officials have given e-cigarette makers, like Juul, maybe the most popular brand, and we've actually talked about Juul on this show before, giving e-cigarette makers 60 days to prove they can keep the devices out of teens' hands. E-cigarettes are touted as a way for adult smokers to get off cigarettes, but there are worries that the concentrated shots of nicotine in e-cigarettes are hooking a whole new Generation, yep. Betsy DeVos is back in the spotlight, oh, sort of. Oh, this yay. is tr- this is true. You're gonna <laughs> like this, Rebecca. I, I'm excited. <laughs> a Tony Award-winning <laughs> Broadway producer this month at a theater in Washington, D.C. is staging a dramatic reading of excerpts oh, of DeVos's infamous confirmation <laughs> hearings. Rebecca's already buying tickets. You remember Grizzly Bears? Those hearings. The bears. The, the producer. Her name is Fran Kermser. Uh, is doing dramatic reinterpretations of a number of recent congressional hearings. So the DeVos treatment is not the only one, but um, she says stripped of punditry and commentary, she hopes her productions can give audiences an insight into the political process.
1: That would be so terribly painful, but yet I don't think I could miss it.
0: You're lining up. You're lining up for it, Rebecca. I I would almost
1: have to go just to relive the nightmare, (laughs) but I... Maybe she just go using to YouTube,
0: just go to YouTube at this maybe point.
1: Maybe puppets or yeah. music or
0: something. <laughs> uh, and finally, and this is not a Sasha Baron Cohen spoof. An Israeli military supply company wants to market its bulletproof backpack to American students. Masada Armor has ramped up production to 500 backpacks a month since the mass shooting in Parkland, Florida, in February. The backpack looks like a normal backpack, but can convert into a chest-protecting bulletproof vest that its makers say can withstand bullets shot from high-velocity rifles like AK-47s and AR-15s. That's shocking. What's more shocking, price tag? $700. Does
1: it light up or have ah! a cartoon character on it? I just, this is crazy. Kids those, don't walk around with that, their backpacks on. This is crazy. The kids need them not at
0: Yeah. Those, no, this are, this are, is those insane. are the headlines. This is not the
3: solution. Those In are faith. the headlines. Goodness well, gracious.
0: coming up, kids these days. But first, this episode of No Wrong Answers is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation. No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control. What our teachers say are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. Like us at Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. Find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And once you do, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours, giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed the conversation you've heard today, subscribe, leave us a review, and keep the conversation going. Now, kids these days, Rebecca... What are your kids into?
1: I know that we're just here in mid September, but it is never too early for me to be angry that the Halloween pop-up stores are open around town. This is but like, this is Rebecca this is Rebecca's kids
0: these days every every September. It's so <laughs> funny.
1: they are the stores That's are wild. open and the candy and the accessories and the Halloween is already infiltrating my classroom and the sugar is already infiltrating uh, your classroom, is what you're saying. Early. I am I am the Halloween Scrooge.
0: <laughs> you're you're crossing two holidays it's there. Too early It's, it's genre it's, crossing.
1: They're they're excited uh. and they they go to visit. It's like this field trip for families now. They go to the store and they have this Halloween experience.
0: And the, the pop up stores. It's just like a, it's right. a seasonal thing. They go, it's pop-up. like a storefront and a strip mall and boom. And there they, they go
1: and all of the new masks are out and the new characters that they're going to be. We're already having the conversations in class. It's too early for me. They should like pumpkin spice or something
0: instead. <laughs> well, save the costume kids these days for October. We I'll, close, I'll have you? one. <laughs> <please>. <laughs> <All right. laughs>
2: I'll have one.
3: All right. David, what are your kids into? Oh, man, I really don't have anything good. Um, I guess, what, Eminem came out with a new album a couple weeks ago, and he caught out a lot of other rappers, and a lot of other rappers are, like, rebuttaling him, and now it's kind of gotten into a pissing match of sorts between him and a lot of other different rappers. So, I don't know, there's a level of hostility within hip-hop that hasn't been there in quite some while and a lot of my students have been buzzing about that I'm like oh you heard this diss track you heard this diss track and i'll go still. So i'm like huh oh, yeah that's pretty mean
0: <laughs> so well i mean he has certainly gotten in trouble too for um i mean he was always like this but i mean i think now even more so it's it's more i think less acceptable oh, uses, absolutely, uses a lot of yeah. Yeah. a lot of homophobic, um, homophobic language. language yeah yep yeah. Yeah. yeah uh lynn what are your kids in chicago into well, you
2: know what? I I don't know if this is recent, but like there's some type of app or something where they can like make their own videos. So there some of my students at the end of last year really, really so into that uh, because uh, I had like a third period free, and so the ones that a lot of students at lunch would come in and hang out in my room while I graded papers or get help, get tutoring or whatever. But some of them are like trying; they're so caught up in making these videos, like, and they see my girls. Doing their hair and they gotta fix their tie their shirt up so they can do this video and you know I was like what and sometimes when I go in the bathroom these girls are in there making their video because they have their the little thing on the back of their phone where they can prop it so they're in there dancing and music playing and doing I said go to class. <laughs> so,
0: you know. Uh, would this be would this be Snapchat or would it be something? Is it Snapchat what they're doing? I mean, who knows at this point? But there's it's, probably it's five a, or an six app different. It's
2: where they can make their own video and then they post it to like Instagram. And no. like... Did you see my video?
3: Yeah,
0: <laughs> I say Snapchat. There's probably been five or six iterations of Snapchat that have come out in the last... Surprisingly,
3: Snapchat still kind of got it, like, holding it down. I definitely thought they would have fizzled out at this point, but the the, the, the young kids still love it.
0: Well, that's what kids are into. Thanks to our teachers this week, Rebecca McIntosh, David Persley, Lynn Osborne-Simmons in Chicago. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, as always, to Matt Hodapp, who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR 89.3 Kansas City Public Radio, where we tape. And remember, kids, be nice to your teachers.